Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 44 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and today we're going to be chatting with one of the game's most articulate and respected analysts, Golf Channel's Frank Nobolo. Frank, obviously best known these days for his work commentating on the game, but he had a very successful playing career in his own right, and after more than 40, 35 years in the game, my apologies, no doubt has plenty of thoughts about where golf has come from and where it is today. We'll meet Frank in just a moment, but first, my co-hosts, as always, back from Kentucky in the PGA Championship at Valhalla, author, commentator, blogger, a colleague of Frank's at the Golf Channel, Jeff Shackle, chat, looking forward to getting Frank's insights on the game today. Yeah, we have no agenda today, so it should be a fun chat. <laughs> just a, a wandering, rambling yak, which is uh, exactly. often, often the best fun. Here in Australia, course designer, former Touring Pro magazine columnist, and a contemporary of today's guest from the European Tour of the 80s and 90s, Mike Clayton. Clayton's like a bit of a school reunion for you today, catching up with Frank. Uh, is Frank and I went to, we first played uh, together, I remember, in a European Tour event. Well, we went over there in early 1982, but we at the first event we played together, because he qualified for one earlier than me, I think, was the German Open. And then we uh, got to the Dutch Open at Utrecht where Sam Sneed and Tommy Bob were playing. And we played a practice round with Mac O'Grady. So I've got fond wow. memories. Oh, 32 years ago, Frank, wow. and, Frank and Mac O'Grady and I at Utrecht. That was a pretty cool day. You've been like a couple of wide-eyed kids, I'd imagine. That would have been quite the experience for a couple of rookies on the European Tour. We were also traversing around in a Fiat 128, which was pretty hard to believe with uh, two caddies. <laughs> Yeah. Numerous other people and a couple of sets of golf clubs, which and is really impossible to do today. I think that's where the term "those were the days" come from. You've heard him there to the man himself, Frank Nobolo. Let me introduce him. Frank was the 1978 New Zealand Amateur Champion. Went on to win. Well, there's conjecture: 13, 14, or 15 professional events, depending whether you go with Wikipedia, the Golf Channel, or some other sites around the web, including five wins on the European Tour, once on the PGA Tour, played on three Presidents Cup teams, was assistant captain in 2009, 2011, joined the Golf Channel after retiring in 2003. With injuries, one of them a bizarre and nasty accident, hit by a golf ball, needed 30 stitches. Frank, none of that does justice to what's been a really interesting life in the game of golf. Thanks for taking some time to chat today. Really looking forward to hearing some of the stories from you and Clates. Yes, well, um, as Clates has already alluded to, yeah, um, we've known each other for, uh, well, well too many years. But um, it was good. I mean, we both cut our teeth, uh, obviously, in the Australasian Tour and in the European Tour. Um, I've admired Mike's work, course design. I always thought that was a natural fit for him more along like the Weisskopf uh, mode. I, I think if you if you have a huge range of emotions, which he does, then then I think that, that comes out in a lot of the work that he's doing today. So whenever we get the chance to chat, it, it's normally a little longer than we anticipate, but we're fine. You're going to fit right in on State of the Game, Frank. That's exactly what happens here every time we get together as well. Let's start with that way back then. Talk about a different time in golf. Two players, two caddies, two sets of golf clubs and a fee at one two eight. That is unthinkable in this day and age, isn't it, Frank, where you have a, a whole team travels with you if you're if you're playing on the tour. Yeah, but I think we were lucky in those days because when you look at the skill factor of the younger kids today, I, th- I honestly think they're better taught. They're better prepared. Um, we at least had the luxury that, you know, cuts were higher. So you could actually develop a game, um, even if you weren't that good initially. There, were, there was a lot more avenues, even though we were playing for a lot less money. So you just took the logical step, especially coming from New Zealand. I went from New Zealand to Australia. That's why I hooked up with a lot of the guys there. And then the next step was the Far East. Um, all of us did that. Then we went to Europe. And then obviously the next step was America. But I think you, you, you learned more about yourself. Um, you learn about competing because when you're getting off a plane or going through passport, playing a totally different golf course for the for the first time, you, you feel very naked, very alone, and um, and 
you, you realize competitive golf very very quickly. You realize competitive golf is, is so much different than amateur golf, professional golf that is. And um, you try and develop your skills, and then then it was it was sort of a great time to turn pro because you really could um, go through. You when we went through the wooden driver era, you went through the the new phase of technology, the golf course explosion, all of that. Um, not always, not all of it was good, but. It was. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't take it back for anything. I, I think it was. It was probably the, the best time to be a professional. Yeah, well, certainly an interesting time, Frank. I, while you're talking, there, I'm thinking more broadly. Um, does that sort of experience create different people, and does that create a different competitor? Perhaps. I mean, golf is such a different thing these days, isn't it? I mean, two players don't travel by car even these days, unless they choose to have one of those big RVs these days. Do you, do you, are you a different person when you grow up in golf that way than what we see today? Yeah, you learn to compete more with your, with your, as people would say now, their B or their C game because you had to make a living. Um, you know, nowadays if, if people aren't 100%, they either skip an event or they'll pull out even during an event. Um, and those days, very rarely did someone withdraw from an event. Um, you, you try to scratch it in for 50th or 60th to make a couple hundred dollars, pounds, whatever currency you were playing with. And, and I think you, you learn to play bad. You, you learn to scratch a score around. Um, there was other good players that we learned from, but... Yeah, it was. It, it, not everybody played flat out. Uh, golf was more an art there because obviously a wooden driver was much harder to hit. That's why the better drivers of the ball were few and far between. And and now the game has changed. It, it's an extremely good game to watch now, but it's played by people that we have to admit are more athletic, stronger, and uh, and the game is, is is a little more one dimensional. But I think technology has a lot to do with that. Mm, no doubt. Well, you've you've found a couple of uh, willing ears to listen to to that sort of talk. <laughs> Here on State of the Game, what do you reckon, Clates, when you look at sort of, well, you're close to Jeff Ogilvie, of course, and the tour experience these days, you couldn't compare it to what you did. How does that impact the golfer and the human being that is underneath the golfer? Well, when we started, the main difference was everyone played so much more. And in Europe and and America at that time, if you made the cut, you, if you weren't exempt, which obviously you weren't if you, in your first year or your first or second year until you made the top 60, you had to keep playing. You know, if you made the cut, you got into the next tournament, so you played. And if you made a bunch of cuts, you kept playing and you couldn't stop. And then when you missed a cut, well, you just went to Monday and started again. So everyone played so much. So there was none of this, I'm exhausted after three weeks stuff. <laughs> uh, and the travelling was much different. The equipment was, the, there were no equipment vans. So if you broke a shaft, it was a nightmare. And if you, you know, if the airlines lost your clubs, it was a nightmare. And it was, uh, Titleist sort of turned up in the, they probably turned up in the – remember, just before I got there, Tony Johnson told me the story of the golf ball rep giving him three or six balls on Thursdays and, and said, if you make the cut, you can come and get three more from you on Saturday to play the weekend with. <laughs> you know, so there was stuff like that that went on. and um, You know, people say there were more characters then. I mean, Mac was obviously in Europe for a year. He, he kind of turned the place on its head for a bit. I mean – the one story, I'll, 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 I'll never forget it, Frank. We were on that third hole at Utrecht, a medium-length par three with a long green, and Mac played the whole tour that year with eight clubs, th- driver three wood, three, five, seven, nine, sandwich putter. And I got to the third tee. I said, how come you're playing with seven clubs, eight clubs? He said, well, he said, just watch. And he stood on the tee. As, as Mac, only Mac, well, I say only Mac. I'm sure other people can do it. And he, with three swings, he flew one ball to the front of the green, one ball to the middle of the green, one ball to the back of the green. Wow. So that was kind of, and the green was forty hours long. So that was kind of an education, but it, it was yeah, just different. They're all, all seven irons. They're all seven irons. And 
I mean, the thing I notice when I go and watch the occasional tour event that I see is that any one of 100 swings on the range would have been the best swing on the European Tour in 1980. You know, if Charles Schwartzler had turned up in 1980, I mean, the, the tour would have stood there and just, well, how's this guy, like, taking it back and not looping it and not swaying his body around and sliding everywhere? And So everyone swings. Their swings look so much more sound technically to me. But, you know, I, I, I'm not sure if Frank would agree, but sure they're better and they play better. But But I think in terms of as Frank said, learning how to play bad, I think it meant that guys, in a sense, were better players. They're, they're probably better golfers now, but guys back then were, there were some great players who got around with some mm. pretty ropey techniques because they played the game very well. It's an interesting take, isn't it? Frank, what, would you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I agree with it. That's why you know there's a lot of different ways of looking at the word competitive, but um, you could say that the players were harder in those days because they played for less. But, yeah, when, when you have to play golf, uh, to try and win a tournament, make a cut with not your best stuff, it's hard. Mm. Um, it really is hard. You, you, you're trying to use the full width of the, the fairway. Um, obviously, you didn't have lasers in those days, so you're trying to guesstimate how much uphill or downhill it, it was. You're grinding on greens that weren't as good. Obviously, agronomy's come so so far. Um, you're getting bad breaks, all of those sort of things. So y- your character is tested mm. very, very quickly in the game, especially when you don't have very much money in your pocket. Mm. So. Um, yeah, and, th- and that's why I, I think also, you know, not to harp on social media and that, but we got away with more too, and, and that's why um, it's amazing the get-togethers you'd have when when people have very little, and then when they have a lot, they tend to they don't need each other. They can afford to be on their own. Mm. We couldn't, and and consequently, you know, you, you you made fun of very very weird situations and in, in weird places at airports or you know sharing a room or whatever. And, and other things, and I'm sure they have similar experiences today, but in speaking with the players, most of them are from college or growing up in their respective countries. They don't have the same experiences on tour because they're gun-shy. They're, they're frightened if they do anything that doesn't conform to what the letter of the PGA Tour is or the European Tour, that they're going to get fined or somebody's going to find out about it, which is a shame because mm. that's part of growing up and that is part of competing. Just on that, can you imagine Clates on the tour in the age of social media? He'd put <laughs> Tiger's fines to shame, wouldn't he? Uh, <laughs> was, uh... He'd be better off today because his clubs could get reshafted in time. <laughs> that's oh. ex- exactly right. Just on that, Frank, and I thought about this while you were talking, at what stage did you think to yourself, I might have a crack at professional golf compared to what we see these days where the reality is there are kids being groomed to become professional golfers from their early teens. Yeah, but my situation, I was going to say, is a little different, but I guess divorce affects 50% of the families today, so it wouldn't be. That'd be a, a huge injustice. But my parents split when I was 16, so it was a way of trying to find my own identity. And um, I fluked into it because I won the New Zealand Amateur on my 18th birthday. And, and it was it, timing is everything and, and sport life in general. So the tour was was not quite strong enough. So it allowed a, you know, sort of a, a forlorn lost 19 year old kid to be able to turn pro from New Zealand and finish in the top 50 in Australia and go from there. And, and I think that's the thing. It, it wasn't like you thought that you were going to finish up playing against Jack Nicklaus or playing at Augusta and, and playing all these major championships, which turned out to be great. You know, you, you look at immediate things right in front of you. You know, I'm trying to get out of my situation or it'd be great to do this. And then you go along and, and before you know it, you're, you're sort of halfway down the track and you don't turn back. But um, that's a product of that era and product of, of, of divorced parents. So you, you're just looking for uh, a way out more mm. than anything. Clates, when did you 
decided, I think it was after you won the amateur, you said, didn't you, around that time when you won the Australian amateur that you thought maybe you might be good enough to think about it. Have I got that right? Oh, well, I won the amateur the same year, Frank, in 1978, the Australian amateur. But I, I was kind of half thinking about turn pro, but not that seriously but because it was, I mean, there was, wasn't that much money. And it was, it, as you said, it wasn't like it is now when four, kids at 13 and 14 decide they want to be golf pros and they turn pro at 20 whether they're good enough or not. I, I really waited in truth till someone told me to do it. I was, you know, I sort of said, what do you think I should do? He said, well, I think you should turn pro. I said, okay, I'll give it a go. But it, I mean, I started on the Australian tour in 1981. So Frank had already been out there a couple of years, but it was a great tour to learn to play because there were so many events. I mean, they weren't, we didn't play for much money. I think we played in, Frank, you probably played in Warrnambool that year for $10,000 total. And we went to Penrith for 25 and Adelaide for 25 and Tasmania for 15 and thousand dollars. But there was a run of eighteen events, probably if you can't counting the three in New Zealand. So it was a great way to. And again, if you made the cut, you kept playing. So that, that, that's how you started off. So it, it was a great way to learn to play, and we and we played good courses. And if you played well, you got drawn with Graham Marsh occasionally, or David Graham, or Peter Thompson, or Kel Nagel. So, so, so there were tremendous players to learn from: Billy Duncan, Terry Gale, and there were a lot of good players down in Australia who were willing to kind of help and look after you and show the way. And, and of course, the other big difference, Clades, was nobody in Australia, or I assume New Zealand, Frank, ever gave a thought to going straight to America if you were going to try overseas. Europe was the only real option, wasn't it? America was just not considered feasible for an Australian to have a crack over there, was it? It was just, yeah, it was too far ahead in the, in the, in the planning. It just, it wasn't the way that anybody else had done it. You know, we, we were sort of like sheep in some respects, not trying to get into the Aussie Kiwi jokes there, but we, <laughs> Fair you, know, you, you followed what, what you thought was a successful path, and that's what everybody else that had succeeded had done. But just going back to Mike, I, I remember because Mike and I roomed together the first few years um, when, uh, when, when he'd turned pro and, and back-to-back hole-in-ones. You know, Mike had two hole-in-ones, I think it was in seven seven or eight days. It was Tasmania and then at Metropolitan, his local golf course. And that made a huge difference because there was almost as much, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, if not more for making a hole-in-one than what there was for winning a tournament. And the hole-in-one that he made was playing alongside Billy Duncan Trevino. So, you know, things like that made – that was like flipping an ace in a deck of cards that, that sort of pushed your career another year. Yeah, well, 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 I mean, I could go to Europe. I, I could afford, you know, I, I made, so I won that tournament. I made 40000 a week, which was, boy, it was a fortune then. So it meant I could go and play. I, I mean, I'd, I'd just turned pro and the, I, I didn't know what I was going to do once the tour finished. All of a sudden, I, I'd made to go to Asia and money to go to Europe, and that, that was what we did. So, so And that's what everybody, everybody did. That's what Peter Senior did and Grady and Baker Finch. Everyone just earned their money in Australia, went to Europe, lost it all, came back again. <laughs> But but I mean, I mean the the biggest influence at the time in Australia was Peter Thompson, and he really I don't want to say discouraged players from going there, but but he, in a sense he did. It was you know America's that great untouchable place full of superstars, and you know you're much better off going to Europe because you can play well there and it's a good tour. And so no one really thought of going to Europe, and, and the only Australians there at the time were. Bruce Crampton had just retired in the mid nineteen seventy five or six. David Graham was there playing well. Uh, Greg hadn't gone there yet, and Bob Shearer was there, and and Jack Newton. So, uh, you know, real Australian superstars, really. So, so no one just wow, it was just the untouchable place, in America. Certain type of personalities there, don't you? Jack Newton, Bob Shearer, very outgoing, very suited to America. So perhaps uh, 
That was, I wonder if Trevino still talks about that hole-in-one, Clates, that he saw you have. Uh, I'm sure it's long forgotten now. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, just on that, Clay, did Frank always have the beard? Of course, it's your trademark these days, Frank, the beard everybody talks about, and they always mention that you descended from a pirate somewhere way back. I'll get you to flesh that out for me at some point. Did, did Frank have the beard back then, Clay? Oh, you're going for the hard-hitting stuff. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> wow. He shaved every morning like every other pro on the tour. Boy, no one turned up. I mean, I saw any the other day like a rag bag the other day on TV. Unbelievable. <laughs> That's not nice. Ben Hogan would be, be, be dragging him all into his office and lecturing this guy. Yeah. Yeah. All of you guys, can't you afford a razor? <laughs> dear, oh dear. Right. Uh, terrific stuff. Frank, what do you remember about sort of those those early years? And I know that um, well, you won five times in Europe, so you, know, and you, you probably have – had a better career than most of us and most people remember and give you credit for, which was cut short uh, pretty sadly, actually, wasn't it, through injury in the early sort of 2000s. What do you remember about those sort of early years and then when you first went to America from Europe uh, and what it was like? It was, I think, mid-90s you went to, to America and what it was like then compared to now? Yeah, um, well, I, I was like, I won the New South Wales PGA when I was 22, so and that was at um, at Federal. So, you know, that, I think when you when you... Uh, play well at a younger age. I remember playing well in the Australian Masters, not wanting but finishing high up there. And they had a very, very good international field. So that was enough to sort of want to go to Europe. And then I stayed nearly 10 years in Europe, loved every minute of it. But in 1996, I remember playing in the Tour Championship um, at the end of the year, which was Valderrama. And I'd won the, the Tournament Players Championship that year in, in, in Germany, which is a five-year exemption. And I, I'd played the Tour Championship just about, you know, the last six or seven years there. So we would normally go down and use the Pro-Am, which is the Wednesday as a practice round. And um, so I, I flew down Tuesday night and I looked at the draw and I was pretty high up on the money list and I wasn't in the Pro-Am. And uh, I sort of inquired why and they go, well, it was an oversight first of all. And they said, well, the Ryder Cup's here next year. And I'm like, what? The What's, what's the Tour Championship got to do with the Ryder Cup? And I'd finished nearly top 10 in all the majors that year. So I'd, I'd had a really good season in the major championships. I had enough money if I wanted to take my U.S. tour card. And um, I, I realized that as long as you played in Europe, Nick Price did it best. He said that you know, in order to com- make a comparison of what you have to earn to get the same sort of endorsements and whatever, and, and it's not just about money, but he said in Europe you had to earn five times as much if you're a foreign player. In America, you only had to earn double. So I realized that you know, as a foreign player, you know, you, you weren't going to get that opportunity again. And, and the time was right to move. I, I was going through my own divorce and, and it was easier really to go there. I felt like my game was was uh, was getting very competitive. I played well in major championships and I, and I really thought I was pretty close to winning one. So I went across and, um, you know, one of my rookies actually won three times of that uh, Hong Kong and Mexico. But I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis in my rookie year. And I, and I realized that was going to stop my, my career. But um, it, like I said, it, it's not that one thing sticks out. Uh, I was lucky to play for as long as I did. I enjoyed it. And, you know, I love competing. I love, uh, you know, Clates and I, we could bore you to death with stories, people you ran into. Matter of fact, I had a radio interview with a guy called Danny Briggs the other day who hadn't heard of the the oh, year, um, yeah, just people you run into along that, that every now and again when they come back into your life, you, you you remember that little pocket of time you spent. And we were lucky because, like I said, we didn't have private planes. It's weird when you say we're lucky because we didn't have private planes. You you work things out amongst your friends. I mean, you got into arguments. You know, you you you'd go for dinner and people had split off, and you know somebody would be, you know crossword or you know the odd fight or whatever the case would be. But you had to sort it out. 
And nowadays, people just go in the other direction. They don't sort it out. And you help people out. I remember Mike Mike Harwood lending Baker Finch money and uh, to keep him going. And a you know, true story, you know, so people did those things. Mm. They don't seem to do them now, but um, I know that doesn't really answer your question, but. Oh, no, it's, well, it sort of does. It, it, it's, it's an interesting insight that you can't get people who haven't played the tour. Even those who spend their life around golf don't get the sort of insights that you're sort of talking about. I wonder if Harwood ever regretted that when he finished second to Baker Finch at the Open that year. Yeah, 91. <laughs> I'm sure it yeah. yeah. You better give me that money back, back uh, Ian. Because you, you mentioned that you won in your, your rookie year there. Uh, in the States, the Greater Greensboro Open. You were there just last week. That must bring back some, some nice news. Did you go back there and commentate? Yeah, no, no, it was good. But it, it's where they had a, a forerunner of the World Golf Championship events, the Sarazen World Open. They used to have good fields. And I've won that back-to-back in 95 and 96. And, and it was really weird. It was, it, was sort of, it was sort of counted as a European tour event, but not. Mm. And that's actually the first time I ever got to play with Jack Nicklaus was during that as the defending champion. And um, things like that. So it was weird. I played well in Atlanta, and, and that doesn't count over there. Mm. And then Don Panos used to run the event. He was promised that to be a World Golf Championship event. And um, as happens now and again on the tour, it didn't eventuate. So he took his money to motor racing. And, and we lost a, an extremely good sponsor in what I thought was a, was a good event. Ernie had won it. Cal Quebecer had won it. Then it moved to Europe. But um, – yeah, no, it was it was good to go back to Greensboro, but it's at Sedgefield now. I, I wanted a place called Forest Oaks, but uh, it's still it's the sixth oldest uh, non-major event on the PGA Tour. That's a mouthful, but but uh, yeah, plenty of history. Uh, beautiful golf swing, Frank Plates, hasn't he? Beautiful lines to his golf swing. I just love watching Frank play. Was he was he known on the tour there by his fellow players? One of the better one of the better players, obviously. I think he was. I got better. He worked. Frankie worked a lot with Dennis Pugh. I think he would say that. I think you got there was there was a point where it's like wow Frank's really gotten better. I remember seeing him in a shot in Indonesia once, and some time we played down there. You were you were, you were the star turn I think there. It's like wow, that was an unbelievable looking shot. And it really probably the um, I guess you you played with Ernie the last round at Oakmont was that right? Yeah, ninety four. Yeah, which was probably the first time he really played well in a major. I guess was it certainly yeah, in America. Was- and was, you know, I think it dawned on people it was suddenly wow Frank's actually really good now. It just kind of happened in a – it was always good, but it was like that jump from good to really good happened – I won't say it surprised people, but it, it happened really quickly. It's like, wow, this guy's really good now. Hmm. Is, that a, is that a swing thing, Frank? What do you remember about that? Was it a swing thing or did something else click mentally or confidence? Uh, what happens there? Well, actually, I remember the, the bed. I, I was playing in the uh, European Open and I'd, I'd, I'd had three or four bad weeks or – I know we're hearing a lot from Jeff right now, so I apologize, Jeff. But, uh, <laughs> He's a great listener. No, I'm, I'm just enjoying listening. Please continue. But, um, you know, I was struggling with, with the way in which I was playing. I think it was like 80, 89 or something like that. And um, I, I remember just not shaving, going back to that for, for a period of time. And, uh, and then it wasn't like beyond ball or whatever like that. But, you know, growing up for Wimbledon. And I, I finished second in the European Open, Open behind a guy called Andrew Murray. And it was weird, just just the fact that you had facial hair, you were treated differently. And um, and then I remember hooking up with Dennis Pugh like a year or two before that. And then this sort of two went hand in hand. People looked at you differently. I worked harder. I had somebody that I really thought uh, was, was telling me something that wasn't that complicated, that seemed to fit in with the way in which I played. It explained some questions that I had on why ball went a certain way and whatever. You know, there's nothing worse than thinking you're doing the right thing and looking up and that ball's never in that window. So when I would work with Dennis, you know, half the time we'd sit down and just discuss golf or, or 
things that I thought were important and sometimes they weren't or they weren't as or, or he would bring up some things that he thought were more important. And um, and it just seemed to click. So you have someone that believes in you and starts staring you down this path. And then, then I realized that when I went out and played that, you know, I could hit some shots that, that were certainly good enough. And, and you then you get confident. You believe, well, more confident anyway. You believe that you they're not that much better than you. It's weird. Um, a guy by the name of Terry Kennell, who sadly passed away, was like a mentor when I was an amateur. And uh, Tom Watson was in his heyday then. And he said, son, he said, just remember, everybody's got two arms and two legs. He said, if you think anything other than that, you might as well write him a check on the first tee. Mm. And that sort of came back to my mind. It's like, you know, it doesn't matter who it is, if it's Jack Nicholas or Greg Norman or Biasteris, you know, you shake the hand on the first tee, but don't give it. Don't give in to them. Just let them beat you. Mm. Is that harder than that harder than it sounds, Frank? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is because uh, yeah, I mean that's that's the simple version because it means a lot. It means it, it means taking a risk. In other words, risking your ability because there's going to be days when it's just not good enough. Mm. But you know, playing it safe or sitting on you know sitting on the outside of the pool because you're, you're too scared to get wet. You know, and it was weird. It's the same thing in broadcasting. I, I remember speaking to Random Laidlaw, going, "I don't know what I'm doing here." <laughs> doing broadcasting, he said, well, he said, I'll give you one word of advice. And I'm thinking, is it technique? Is it what you say? Is it what you shouldn't say? And he said, it's just like dump, jumping into the deep end of a pool. He says, if you can't swim, get out. Find something else to do. If you can paddle around for a while, you'll be fine. And and I think when I thought when I thought back to the late 80s, early 90s in golf, it was the same. It's just being prepared to jump into the deep end. You don't know what's going to happen. And, and I think that's when it actually becomes more enjoyable. That's where you don't mind going to the range or going to the gym to be a little fitter in that because – um, it's the beauty of the unknown, I think, is the one thing that, that's lacking sometimes. You know, the, that was the great motivator for my generation. I'd like to think with some of the best players today. When you don't know the outcome, it's actually it's pretty cool. And, and, it, and it makes you wake up and it makes you want to play. There's two great fears, isn't there, Frank? Fear of failure and the fear of success. They're the, the yep. great motivators, aren't they? And you don't find out which one you've got until you go to compete, I guess, uh, at the sort of level you're talking about. That's the beauty of the Tiger Woods and that and the Jack Nicklaus is when they, when they hit a shot and they're not frightened of the outcome. That's a that's a beauty to behold. Mm. Well, and it's a, it's a difficult state to achieve, isn't it? I mean, you can you can't talk yourself into that. There there is a, a core belief that has to happen to allow you to do that, doesn't it? And I don't think even they can do it. Switch it on and off when they want. It just uh, they seem to do it more than others. I wanted to ask you about getting into to TV. As you said, there it was never an intention of yours. You your career was cut short by injuries, which is sad for you and for all of us. I think you know when a good golfer's career is ended prematurely going into television what was that like i know it sort of came about as it often does for former touring pros you get offered a position uh, and you kind of have a crack at it it is like a whole new career isn't it Frank? it's almost like learning golf again i remember talking to ian baker finch about this it, it is a a complete job isn't it you don't just get wander in sit there and chat <laughs> it's much more involved than that isn't it i've never worked harder in my life and and I still don't find it as enjoyable as I would like. Uh, I quit in the first 45 minutes I did my first show. I, I was lucky. I worked with a guy called Keith Hirschland. It was a Champions Tour event in, in Hawaii. And you, you think you've got an idea. It's just golf, right? You sit in front of a microphone and talk golf. But, um, you know, I feared I was dyslexic doing my first show because everything's back to front. It's so logical when you think about it afterwards. But, you know, the camera shows the whole backwards. And I'd only ever played the, played golf forwards. You know, I'd heard of the Ben Hogan stories and, and practiced sometimes that way where you stand in the middle of green and look back and say, oh, the architect wants you to hit it down the left or the right. But I never thought of when you're calling golf, if it's Michael, Jeff hitting a shot, you know, let's see, are they, are they by the right bunker or the left bunker? Because the camera's from the other side. And the first 45 minutes of the show, we had rehearsal. I just couldn't get it. 
And I'm like, this is, you know, how did I even say yes? This is ridiculous. <laughs> and then, and then learning the hardest thing really, it, it, and I still think it's, it's, it's the best thing in broadcasting. No matter what the sport is, is learning to shut up. Um, and, and my, my first producer told me that he said, if, if you've got something better to say than what's on the screen, i.e. the action, then you should be doing another job because when the ball's being hit, it's their time. It's the player, you know, somehow, you have to, in a short period of time, either uh, weigh the, the player's shot up in front of them, uh, critique the shot afterwards that they've hit, but it's their moment. And and people, when they watch golf, they, it's amazing how people look at a screen with a white ball in the middle of it just going through the air. They're captivated by it. And this also the sound of a, a, of a well-hit shot. Mm. So let them enjoy that. So just working around those parameters. And, and there is a similarity between calling golf and playing golf it gets back to that unknown thing is that you can go and shoot 65 today, but when they give you the card and pencil the next day, you start it, you start from scratch. That's the one similarity with TV mm. is that, uh, and people, some people might say it's the same with every job, but you can, you can feel like you're part of a relatively good broadcast or normally it's because the golf's good. It's not because of what we say. And then the next day you got to do it again. The same way, if you shoot eighty on the air, and I've had a few of those, then <laughs> they, you know, you've got to get up there and, and do the same thing and act like you've shot sixty-five. Or, but but yeah, it's 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 like golf; you never get it right. Yeah, Shaq, you're a keen watcher of uh, golf on TV. Frank's, uh, I, I think Frank brings a uh, something really good to the golf. I really enjoy listening to Frank's commentary, and I think I guess part of it is what he's just saying there, isn't it? Is that the ability to know when to shut up. Nothing worse than hearing commentators talk over the caddy player conversations yeah. that we occasionally get to hear. You know, those sorts of things. Yeah, I'm always fascinated. People in television uh, tell you that that's what the producers tell them, and then over and over again, we have these instances where uh, uh, where there's a great conversation, or even just a conversation. The least interesting conversation is probably more interesting than anything a, a an announcer can say, and yet people talk over. And I, I've always been curious, uh, and maybe Frank can explain, but there. I, I always wonder if they if they don't get the full audio in their in their headsets. You know, does Nick Fallow not hear that uh, Bones and Phil are starting to converse and the sound guys on it? It's it's always strange to me because those conversations are brilliant sometimes. Yeah, that was that, sort that, of a question. No, no, you're absolutely right though, Jeff. You know, sometimes you feel like you're filling your CV though. You get caught if you've had a couple of bad days, or you feel like you're not contributing. Mm. And and you do hear it. Everybody does hear it. But um, once again, if you think what you're saying is more important, then you, you're losing your perspective. And and you're absolutely right because when you hear – I always think it's fascinating because I love listening to the caddy player because if you've done your homework and you've got your yardages or shot length as they have over there, you know exactly what they haven't if – you, if you've done your homework, you know exactly mm. the shot they're looking at, minus obviously if the wind's kicked up or whatever. And then when you hear the caddy, and, and sometimes you'll hear them blatantly make a mistake, hmm. but the viewer has to hear that because when, when they invariably airmail it off or the caddy throws in the mystery, which isn't that often, but when that happens, that's where you've got to hear it. Whereas hmm. if you just lost over it and, and, and you just listen, plus, you know, we get plenty of time to talk. So, you know, and yeah. I, I think every announcer is going to do it differently. Everybody gets into the job differently. If you've got six majors, I think the the role is a little different. You know, you're meant to be there for a reason. Um, some of us are there for different reasons, but uh, but in the end, you know, it, it's the sound of a ball whistling through the air off a face, even if it's metal as opposed to the old persimmon days. It's still great, and it, yeah. that's I think still the most important thing. But 
everybody does hear what's going out there through their headset. <laughs> One of the things about TV, Frank, that I imagine is that having never done TV, you must feel like you're the kind of the centre of attention and you must feel almost a responsibility to do something. <laughs> I better do something. I'm on television here. That must be a bit hard to overcome, I would think. Well, I had that last week. I shot my 80 last week at the, at the Greens. <laughs> no, it's, it's weird. I'd come off studio shows and, and you just don't have a good feel for the situation. Um, time, your timing's not good. You're, you're trying to lay out, as we would say, and then, and then you're trying to add in. And, and there's always a cadence to a show. And every, every producer's different. Some like to get to the shot early. Some like to get there really tight and you know, play the shot quickly and go to another one. And we had a different producer. It wasn't his fault. I just couldn't get to grips with it, and and then in the end, I just remember the old thing. Well, you know, if I don't if I don't say anything, I haven't said anything wrong. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah I, I really wasn't contributing that much, to be honest. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't exactly a, a stellar performance. But um, you know, the, yeah, you it's you're lucky you have a job, and you and you're lucky you're still involved with the guy the game. It's mm. still a great game. It's it's played as as Mike was talking about, as Jeff has written about on so many different occasions. It's different now, but it's still great. Um, the hardest thing is to come into grips with the changes and not sounding like a grumpy old man. That was one thing no, I never wanted to do. It. I'd, I'd seen other announcers. When you become the bitter and twisted ex-pro, it's 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 a dangerous profession. Oh, you, you've wandered into the pool, Frank. You've... <laughs> yeah. I'm, see, I'm not a journalist. I'm an analyst. My, my job is to comment on what's going on, not write a story. And I, and I think, sadly, what's happening lately is analysts are becoming journalists because they want a, a good soundbite or a good story, and that's not our job. What, well, what's your take on some of that stuff? Because, of course, the media, even in your time in the media, probably even more so in the time you've been in the media, the media has changed. For those of us in the media, no one can keep a track of what's happening and, and where it's going. Um, newspapers have obviously taken a hit from the internet. Magazines are starting to. You would think television in the long term is going to be a victim of the internet in sort of the same way. Do you see, not the panic, but the are people looking ahead in television and thinking about this sort of stuff? And What are the sort of changes you've seen? Coverage seems to be different to me to what it used to be. Yeah, sadly, I think we've regressed a little bit in that. You know, the great journalism used to be uh, a regular occurrence. And it's sad now when you've almost got to thumb through four or five different articles to actually find something. And you go, wow, never really looked at it that way. Mm. And um, because anybody can write now, anybody can get it, you know, on the internet or Twitter or whatever. You know, what can you do in 126 characters? That's. I guess Hemingway, with a little bit more booze, could probably restrict it to 126 words a day rather than 500. But um, you know, there's sometimes we we lead, we 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 misinterpret the sport very very quickly, and we lead people down the wrong path. And like I said, I'm not a journalist; I'm an analyst. That's why I I try and stick to the golf because I get far more you know far more confused. I I, I read Jeff, obviously. I read I read Clates and. I'm amazed at their their emotions, how they can they can look at look at the the game differently than what I see it at times, and which is fine. I think you think you should always challenge people, but I hate the easy street. You know, like a lot of people made money on Tiger going up the hill, and now the same people are trying to make money on Tiger going down the hill, and I just think that's disingenuous. So yeah, but don't uh, don't you don't you think some of that? I mean, I know from. My perspective, uh, I'm, I'm down on Tiger because it's it's a downer for a, me as a golf fan not getting to see him uh, uh, continue to pursue certain records and and be great. I and so I get I get down on him and some of the things he does because I 
fear we're going to miss out on those things. You don't you don't sense that in some of the the, the coverage. No, I, I think, but I think you normally you normally write both sides, uh, which I think is important. Or at least at least there's an attempt to write both sides. I just think that there's a, a lot of people that jumped on board because Tiger it was a brilliant timing when you think of it. Over the last fifteen or twenty years, they managed to push golf through a recession worldwide. The money still went up. Uh, he won better than anyone I've ever seen win in the sport, and he's not a warm and glowing personality away from the game at all. He's probably the, he's the hardest soundbite in golf. He doesn't say much. We all know that, but we all love to watch him win. That was the way it was. And ever since the fire hydrant, things have gone horribly wrong. And, you know, his, his body's changed. Everything's gone wrong. But everybody wants to, for example, that the topic of the day now is he should go back to Butch. And everybody reminisces about 2000 when he was 24 going on 25. And there's a touch of irony in that because that's exactly where Rory McIlroy is now. And, and we all know we can't turn the clock back. Mike and I were just talking about reminiscing about, you know, the, the, you know, the late 70s through the 80s and all that. We're, there's umpteen times you'd love to go back and be that person right now and maybe do something differently. But he's not. He's 38 going on 39, a body that's beaten up if he was any other sport. I was watching a tennis the other day, Beyond Borg, you know, played tennis at the highest level for 10 years and quit. 15 to 25 years of age and done. So, and we want golfers to play 20 or 30 years. I just think there's a there's a level of accountability we have to have. We can't just quickly dismiss dismiss certain things. And, and I think the the general stand of journalism nowadays, especially with regard to Tiger Woods, is that way. You don't have to like the guy. We don't have to agree with everything he says. But like I said, if it's just about making money on the way down, then then I'm not for that. Mm. One of the problems, of course, with Tiger Frank, he didn't ingratiate himself on the way up, so the trip down is always going to be more difficult because of that. Um, but there's an old saying, isn't there? Be nice to the people on your way up because they're the same ones you're going to pass on your on your way back down. That's part I, of the problem. But, but but if you're going to make money with them, yeah, then then you then then then, then you're in the same boat. In other words, if we if we're a fire and say I don't like the guy going up, but I'm going to make money with him. And then on the way down, I said, well, I still don't like him, but I'm going to make money with him. Then, then that's why I'm saying that there's a sort of a bit of a moral issue there. But you're, you're, you're right on the money. Mm. Where do you think Tiger's at, Frank? With the, I mean, do you see him coming back and playing really well again or just kind of fading into the sunlight, really into the moonlight really quickly? Or do you see a lingering half-decent career or what? Well, obviously, you know, I think he can break Sam Snead's record, you know, with his eyes closed virtually. Um it's weird. I was looking at something, you know, Jack Nicholas the other day, right? Jack Nicholas only won uh, three times after the age of 41. So Tiger's getting close. Motivation's a big thing. He's, his motivation is, is really weird. It's so unusual to see someone that, and, and I think that's the chip on the shoulder. We used to talk about it as Australasians, have born with a chip on the shoulder. He's, he's probably the, the, as far as Americans go, I've never seen an American that driven whether the motivation is right or wrong, that, that, that wants, wants him to come back and literally crush everybody again. So I still see the motivation there, but I think it's the unraveling process, Mike. You know, he's, he's not anything close to what he was in 2000. People forget the Haney years. Nobody liked the way in which he, he swung the club in the Haney years. The dipping and all that that people are talking about that, that's, you know, is the, is the attack with Sean Foley now. That started back in 2007, 2008. That's been going on for a while. But, He's, he's just not ready to play physically. You know, if if you look at him as a tennis player, as a golf, just another sport, you'd say the guy shouldn't be. I said, try to say it on the air. 
if he played in a in a team sport, his coach or trainer would put him on the disabled list. Bench him, yeah. Yeah, yeah they'd bench him, and then they'd say, you're not ready to play. But he's, you know, for years he's supposedly done things uh, that nobody else has done. You know, people say he won on a broken leg, it was a fraction, not a break. Um, when he won in 2008, that he, he can do things that people can't. And I, and I think in some respects, he fell in love with that, that, that he could make a comeback that nobody else could. But um, I think until he, in some respects, number one, respects the game again, in other words, all the things that it's given to him, and, and actually gets a healthy body again, then, then I think the next step isn't attainable. But if he does, if, if, he, if he falls in love with the game before like he did as a kid and gets vaguely healthy, then, yeah, I definitely think he can make another run. I was about to say, it's, that, that's how it seems from the outside, Frank. It's more the mental... I mean, he, he never really won golf tournaments with his clubs, did he? I mean, clearly he did, but it was far more about his approach and his mental discipline uh, was how he won golf tournaments, and more so than the physical. That's what he seems to have. Obviously, he can't drive it particularly well at the moment, but he, he could win without a driver previously. I'm sure he could do it again if he was mentally in the same spot. I think you're right. He seems to have lost the joy, doesn't he? You don't see the joy from Tiger that he used to, even when he's winning and playing well. Yeah, well, that was one of the things when when he after the fire hydrant, it was almost like I'm not going to give anybody any pleasure. Yeah. No fist bumps, no smiles, no nothing. It was payback time, mm. and and that's why I say that you know the motivation. Um, just getting back to, and I know it's got to be hard. He's been under the microscope for years, but he doesn't realise that the game's given him so much. And and I think it's this quid pro quo thing where he thinks he's you know more people are taking than what than than, than what they should. But you, you don't have to fight City Hall every single week. Mm. And it's, there's enough people that want him to play. And then the ones that don't, that's fine. We don't have to, you don't have to love everybody. You don't have to hate everybody. Just get out and play and realize, you know, if he could play the next, the next five to 10 years on his own terms, but actually enjoy it. And, you know, and the reason why I say respect the game, I mean, he's showing up at golf tournaments over the last couple of years with, with zero practice. He never did. No. He used to arrive at Torrey Pines at the start of the year. And the only thing he hadn't done was play a competitive round of golf. He had done everything. He'd hit balls. He'd played. He was ready. He'd, he'd spent more time on the range. He was like a marathon runner that had put miles in his legs, and all he had to do was wait for the gun to go. And whereas now, he's, he's almost trying to find a game on the range mm. and, um, before he even tees off. It's, and that, that's sad. And it's tough to do, as you say, under the microscope, because no matter what he does, he's under the microscope. brings me, uh, Frank, I wanted to get some of your thoughts on the new king, hail the new king, Rory McIlroy. We've got the new tiger, according to some. What's your take on the whole McIlroy freight train, aside from the fact that I don't think anybody's seen anybody drive the ball the way he has the last month or so, since perhaps Greg Norman with the Persimmon. But what's your take on Rory and, and as Jeff had on his site the other day, that awkward appearance on the late show with him and Tiger? Yeah, no, Rory's great for the game. I've got to know him a lot over the last sort of six or seven years, ever since you know he sort of put himself on the scene as as the amateur that was going to be a star. Um, there's, there's a lot of similarities between Woods and, and Rory for obvious reasons, because obviously Tiger was Rory's hero growing up. Um, the fact that, you know, they were prolific at younger ages, they did all these crazy things. So you knew they were good. They, they had something special, but then there's glaring differences. Rory's definitely learned from Woods, the way in which he handles um, certain situations in the media. Um, his relationship, I was at Wentworth this year when he won, um, and that's really where his, his year turned around. And he underplayed the, the closing ceremony. He was very aware of the fact that how people would think he's like ramming it down Caroline Wozniacki's throat. And he, I thought he handled that extremely well. And um, he's aware of it. He's, he's, he's trying to live his own life. I've, I've got to know his parents, Rose and Jerry, as well. And, and he comes from a really good, solid family. But you see the joy. And he does remind me of a 23, 24-year-old Tiger Woods from, from that respect. 
And he has that gear. He has that free-flowing gear that you hardly ever see. Like there's a touch of Greg Norman in there um, where he'll play flat out. The fact that he had driver on that on the 18th hole, 72nd hole at Valhalla. In the dark. Uh, <laughs> it's crazy. I don't, I don't know why his caddy just didn't grab him and said, listen, pal, just hit, you could hit three iron, five wood all day long. It's dark. You don't need to do anything crazy here. But that's the way he plays. I mean, it shows you his state of mind at the moment, but it also shows you that he likes to play close to the edge. And um, that's what golf needs. We had we had the clinical technician in the way in which he won in Tiger Woods. And we've got this sort of brash, a little bit of Greg Norman in him. Um, bit and of Phil little, Mickelson. Yeah, a little bit of Mickelson. But, you know, he's a straight ahead of them both of those. Mm. What? Well, not, not straight ahead than, sorry, Greg Norman. But there's a nice blend in his game. He's still not a great putter. And then, if you could imagine the world with a you know with a relatively healthy Tiger Woods, you know you'd, you'd have Darth Vader and you know I don't know Luke Skywalker sort of thing. It'd be great. Mm. Oh, well, it's a mouth-watering yeah. idea, isn't it? But uh, yeah, but no, Rory's Rory's a great kid, and he's come along at the right time. Uh, well, now I listened to another podcast, a bunch of Irish blokes, and they had uh, John Hopkins on from one of the I can't remember what the Guardian or the Times Hopkins writes for and Times and Times, and he described it as uh, we're that we're emerging from a period of austerity. Uh, with Tiger into a, a period of Edwardian splendor with Rory as far as the, their, their press sort of credentials. Yeah, but let's temper that. I mean, the UK guys get a little carried away uh, with Rory. They, you said this they, the, last time too. What, what's that about? You were at the Open. What, what, what upset just do, you? Well, I mean, they know things that they don't write about and then they sit there and tell the American press how uh, – how ridiculously blindsided uh, or blinded we are by uh, anything Tiger does wrong, and um, they. But Rod, there are ovations in the press room yeah. <laughs> when Rory makes birdies and and win and makes the winning putt to win the Open. It's a little embarrassing. I mean, loud ovations, not 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 little ones, this big not, ones, big is, hollering, and oh my god! It's this is not the journalism our guest grew up with and would like to see. Check. <laughs> Well, I just uh, yeah, they don't need to get that. I I understand why they're excited. He's good for business. He's good for golf. All these things, but to, he talks to them, Shaq. It's just a refreshing. He, and he, he talks and he's to a them. great interview. Yeah. He's very honest uh, to a fault. Maybe he's he's incredibly blunt, and uh, he's he. I understand it. I they're in love. I get it, but. The ovations are a little much. But you're not going to let him get away with it, and that's uh, that's fair enough. Clates, I want to hear from you again because, of course, you spent so many years playing with Frank and whatnot. We haven't heard some of your great stories, and I'm we haven't for a couple of episodes. And I love it when you have when you bring up your great stories. Tell us about and ask Frank about some of those moments that you remember back in your playing days. Oh, well, I, I remember those early. Well, a classic Frank when Frank cheated. Well, I remember when Frank cheated at the but Billy said, "Oh, this was a classic." Cheated. This is an extraordinary what? revelation. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> okay. You remember when you cheated, Frankie? Oh, no, you're talking about in the qualifying when I knocked the ball off the green. This is a, this is a classic. Frank didn't cheat. Frank broke the rule. And, and it was funny back then when there were lots of rules that I used to whack my putter against trees all the time and bend it back and keep playing with it. And So Frank got on the first hole at Bingley St. Ives, which is the worst Alistair McKenzie golf course in the world probably. Difficult site. It starts with a par three, finishes with a par three. We're at the pre-qualifying. First hole's this really hard par three. We're, like, we're lying awake all night wondering how we're going to hit this three on this par three. So Frankie rips it up onto the middle of the green. And he had this putter he'd bought at the British Open the week before, that tiny little ship's brass putter. Remember that putter, Frankie? <laughs> I do, and actually. Takes a practice swing, as Davis loved it, I think, at the Players' Championship years later. Takes a practice swing and whacks the ball off the toe of the putter into the bunker. 
So rather than just putting another ball down on the green and punting from there, he walked down to the bunker and splashed it out of the bunker and made a quick double bogey. You call that cheating? <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting for the cheating. Well, no one, well, no, no one knew that the rule was actually you actually couldn't do oh. what you, did. you actually had to put, play the ball from the green. See? So it, it was an interesting kind of take on just how stupid. I mean, I mean, I mean so, many, so many ways you learn the rules just by someone else screwing them up. So that's kind of how you learn what the rules of golf are. And I never knew that. And they're, they're, oh, wow. Well, you know, if you take a practice, we hit your ball into the bunker. You don't go into the bunker and play. You put it back on the green and putt. So Frank made his obligatory double bogey and went and qualified and played with Mac O'Grady. Got drawn with Mac O'Grady. He came to Germany the next week and said, I've just played with the best player I've ever seen. What's his name? Mac O'Grady. Like, who the hell's Mac O'Grady? So that was so, – and, and Sam Snead played that week, which was – they played – Snead and Bolt played and – they both missed a cut, and the Dutch organisers arranged for them to play an exhibition. They teed off 15 minutes after the final group on Saturday and played an 18-hole exhibition match, which is kind of a classic. And how were the crowds? Were there more people following Snead and oh, Bolt in the last well, group? <laughs> yeah, and, and we were – I mean, I was – you know, I think that – I mean, I kind of watched Sam Snead, and I, I watched him at Balls in the Range, and I knew how great he was, but didn't – you know, I think now if it was 73-year-old Sam Snead and 24-year-old Mike Clayton, I'd have spent every waking hour of the day that Sam Snead was playing golf, watching him and hitting balls and just, you know, he, he was an incredible athlete and it was it was amazing to see him play at that age and still be able to play great golf. He could still kick but, the door over his head into his 70s, couldn't he, I reckon? Yeah, you know, there, there were so many, I mean, there were so many funny things happening in Europe, I suppose. That, I mean, Frank, uh, you know, I, I don't know about you, I suspect you're the same, but I think you and I were incredibly lucky to play in that era of Seve, really, to, to, to watch him play at his best. And you yeah. probably play, you probably played with him more than I did because you played better than I did. But but you know he was, I thought the one of the most extraordinary players ever to play golf, really. Yeah, he had a he had a passion. I, I never forget his farewell walking up. Um, I think it was Birkdale, and he, when he blew kisses to the crowd, yeah, there, there was a. There's a weird way about Seve, you know, when you play with them and and um, and just get to know them because you know most people put up a facade. You are competing, and then when you can slowly break that down, you have dinner with them and you get to know. Like he used to smoke. People forget he smoked from the military days, and he'd always have one one cigarette would be stuffed in his sock. And uh, wow, you know, I never knew that. Yeah, so he. Uh, we're, it was at the Lancome one year, and we're having and there was Wizzy, myself, my wife to be there. And of course, every girl like falls in love with Seve, you know, whether it's a waitress or whatever. And and he he was telling jokes, and that's the other thing. But anyway, he reaches down. I'd never ever seen him smoke, and he pulls a cigarette out of his sock, and he starts smoking. And he and of course, typical Seve, he smokes like James Bond. It looks like it, but that's that's the way he smokes cigarettes. Born to smoke. <laughs> yeah, and of course, you know, Wizzy's like a steam engine, steam train. I mean, he's smoking up. You know, he can't he can't swap him quick enough. And but Seve only has one, so the next cigarette he has to bum off somebody. And, of course, you know, there's always, you know, so many people, number one, couldn't believe he was smoking, and then they were also the first to give him another one. But um, just going back to that Holland story, that I'd, I'd play with Mac at Bingley St. Ives, and, and the reason why, as Mike had said earlier, he only had like half a set of clubs. He finished third in the British PGA that year, and uh, it was the one I think Tony Jacklin won, and he snapped a few of them in the process, and they were all made of Ben Hogan specs, even though Mac was taller. So I told Mike, hey, this this guy's amazing. We've got to play a practice round with him. So Mike's told the story about the practice round, but he missed the car ride going back. 
because uh, Bolt and Snead there, they're sitting in front of the hotel, and it's, and it's absolutely chucking it down with rain, and they're drinking scotch or something there. And there's a railing by the side of the hotel, and it's a main road in the middle of uh, middle of Holland. And we got a lift back. We jammed in the back of his mini with uh, his wife, Fomenko, I think her name was. Yeah, Fomenko, yeah. And <clears throat> we'd got into, you know, he started, le- well, not lecturing, telling us about the golf machine. Well, you can read a book, right, but when someone plays the way he did and hits the three seven irons that Mike's talked about, hits drivers off the deck, hits them left-handed, and they all look – he's a great demonstrator, and he was a marvelous athlete. I mean, at the end of 18 holes, you're a believer. I mean, you'll change religion for him. So um, we go to the, – there we are. It's chucking it down with rain. He gets out, and he's using this railing that's about two and a half, three feet off the ground to explain the plane of a golf swing. And there's Clates and I, like two idiots. We're getting absolutely soaked, soaking this all up, and – Tommy Bolt and Sam Cedar just shaking their heads. They think we're well, all like lunatics. And uh, Mac turned to uh, Tommy Bolt and, um, and Sam Sneed and says, uh, we're doing the golfing machine. You ever heard of that? And I can't actually utter the reply, but you can imagine there was a few. Uh, There's a little bit of profanity in the reply uh, from Tommy Bolt saying he hadn't really read the book. But, um, yeah, that was just one of many, many crazy situations we'd find ourselves in. Fascinating character, Mac O'Grady. As you've pointed out many times, because it's a shame that we don't get to hear from Mac. He's a bit reclusive, isn't he? But he's got some amazing insights into the game. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, yeah, he's the most talented. Hmm. Demons, uh, 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 I don't want to say player because Tigers and you know, those guys but are incredibly talented. But Mac could do things that you know, turning a persimmon driver upside down and swinging it, a, a right-handed persimmon driver, Swinging it left-handed and flying the ball 260 yards in the air with a draw, and it's like, wow. I mean, he, he did play a full year left-handed, did he not, towards the end of his career? I thought he... Well, no, not, not on the tour, but I'm, I've played with Mac a bit left-handed. And it, it, as good as he was right-handed, he, he, he wasn't, there wasn't that much difference between his right-handed game and his left-handed game. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Staggering. You know, the, 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 and it's, you know, it's sad in a way that you know, he doesn't... It's his choice he, that, that he doesn't... I'm sure if he walked out in the two an hour, he could pick up eight or ten players and teach them and mm. make them play better. But what about the relationship with the players, Frank? When you go from being a player to into television, has that changed? I've had a couple of interviews with you in the last day or two. Where you've sort of suggested that things do change when you go to the other side. I guess quote I'm using the air quotes there. You're on the other side now, I suppose, aren't you? Then kind of the enemy in a way. Yeah, it's a, it's a, saved me a fortune in Christmas cards. I know. <laughs> It's like down to about two now. I don't, I don't even know if my wife sends me one these days. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, you, you go from gamekeeper to poacher, really. That's, that's the way it's perceived. But, um, you know, everybody does the job differently. One thing that I've tried to do, I guess because I do more live golf than most, you know, I go to the range, rain, hail, or shine. So if, uh, if I've annoyed someone the week before or maybe somebody I work with has or, or whatever, you know, I think you've got to be answerable for what you say. And, and plus – the the game changes so quickly. You know, a new club like you know, a, a manufacturer brings a brand new driver. Out. If you're not there, you don't see it. Mm. And then you find out, you know, a month later or two months later, kids are using a new driver, and you completely miss that. Or he's working with a different coach, or something's happened. So you go to the range, and, and you just sort it out like old school. You sort it out. And if a guy goes, I can't believe you did such and such, or whatever, or then you just chat, and and you're there, and and that's how you find out your information. And it's still fun watching people. Hit, hit balls mm. but you know my job my job is if i'm watching you know jeff and, and mike playing you know it's not my golf that i'm watching i'm watching how far jeff hits or how far mike hits it for me to do my job you've got to imagine if a person hits the ball 300 yards his shot's going to be different mm. to a guy that can only drive the ball say 270 yards the way in which he's got to play the golf course is different 
So it's incumbent on me to, to just keep going down there and, and trying to find out more and more, you know, what the guys do. And you see, you see their patterns. You know, the guy, bad warm-ups, do they still play poorly or do they play well? Do they bounce back? You know, um, is he over-technical? All of that sort of stuff, which is pretty cool. But, yeah, to me, I think you've always got to face the fire. But, yeah, I, got, I don't have to write as many Christmas cards now. So. <laughs> uh, I'm, <coughs> I'm sure you don't. Frank, we, we, were, we all watched Captivated. I'll be interested to hear your thoughts. Was, was your frank and open exchange with Brandle Chambly the other week an 80 or a 65 in your eyes? Lots of us watching thought it was a 65. It was fabulous television. What was your take on – because that was unusual for you, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. It just it went about it. It sort of stayed the day. It started the day before um, on launch angles, and and it's weird. Technology's around and alive and well now, but you know, I think we're on the on the precipice of, of, of what I think should be something that's good for the game, but it's perceived very negative. You know, information should always be powerful, and um, once again, it, it's assumptions. It, to me, if you're not talking to Tiger Woods and not talking to Sean Foley, you can't assume what they're working on. So I can't assume that Mike Clayton's been overly technical. If I don't talk to him, or Jeff Shackle's too Jeff Shackle's too analytical. If I don't talk to them, so there was an assumption made the night before over launch angles and why. Um, and I didn't, you know. There's also a writer reply because it, it's like a, you know, it's a studio show. So you go, you know, if there's three people, you go, you know, A, B, C, and then goes back to A and B, B, C again. So sometimes there's there's no writer reply even if you want it. And um, and I just thought the, the the discussion was a complete 180 the following night. So I'm like, well, hang on a minute, you know, I'm, I'm missing this. Yesterday it was this, and today it was that. And um, it was my argument was I don't think you can look at his swing until you can until he gets his health right. But it was a critique, really, you know, two two totally different points of view on the same subject. Personally, I think that you know it was good because you know Tiger is a, a very um, What's the best way to put it? Uh, everybody's got an opinion on Tiger Woods. Doesn't matter if it's the if it's the guy that's seen one golf shot hit or a guy that's followed golf for fifty years. Everybody's got an opinion on him. So when you have two people whining in from different sides, I, I still think that's healthy. But it just it was one of those things that developed, and unfortunately the host stayed out of it. So it went. I don't know. Some say six minutes. Some people say eight minutes. But it, it you know it became two two people basically having a very healthy. Um, argument stroke discussion. Um, I don't think that's bad. It just sometimes it, it, it just comes out of the blue. The hardest thing is you don't quite know where someone's going sometimes, as they could say that about me. So I, I, I wasn't quite sure what direction he was going. So when you're trying to pull an argument back to the middle ground, you know, you can go in lots of different directions. Mm. But uh, Must have felt like being back in the bar on the European tour in the 80s as you were just <laughs> crosswords are exchanged and, and whatnot. But uh, it just yeah, seemed... Well, it was out of Brand- character for you, Frank, I guess, for a lot of us. You're normally such a cool customer, and it seemed that you really had a point to make there. No, no, I, I thought it was a case of defense at that time because, you know, where I sit on a studio show, if it goes A, B, C, and this is something that I've talked to the producer, but, you know, there's a, everybody has a role to play, then you get to speak, I speak, and then you get the rebuttal. So it, it, it works a lot of, you know, a lot of times like that, just as it goes down that street. So if there's no right of, right of reply or no rebuttal from the other end, it, it always goes the same way. And you just, a lot of times you just let it go. And, and I know I'm going to do live golf the next week or whatever. But it was one of those ones where I really personally felt that, that and Foley, I, I doubt he'll probably be with Tiger Woods come the end of the year. Um, that it was just the scapegoat, that we all know that Tiger Woods is not going to go to, back to Butch Harmon. That was something that people knew in the Hank Haney days because he was offered the job during the Hank Haney tenure. 
And and why would you ever want to teach a guy when you've had when you've taught him over the best period of golf mm. ever been? Yeah. Um, you can debate who the greatest player is, but um, you know no one has ever played that level, um, that level of, that level of golf. So you, you're looking at a twenty fit twenty four year old thin guy to a guy that's now all of a sudden you know forty or fifty years, and everybody wants to you know like hammer down on Sean Fowler. At least one guy does. So I just I just happened to think it was unfair, and Noda Begay was to my left. I thought he was in a a very awkward situation to reply. Um, so I'm like, nah, you know, uh, and it was unusual for me, but I just felt it had to be done. Good on, good uh, on Frank, you, Frank, I'm, I'm mystified by all the uh, the intrigue into instructors and, and all the blame placed on somebody like Sean Foley, who has many other students who are very good. Uh, do you think that it, it's reached a point where it's uh, getting a little silly, you know, things like, uh, Butch Harmon has to check with the other uh, horses in the stable before going with another student. Is 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 this a product of something, or or, or do these people really have that important of a role in in the way these these players play now? That's a good question, Jeff. Um, I had one one explain it to me uh, to go sideways first to get back there. You know, if if a pro if a teaching pro gets say five percent commission. He goes, so I get paid 5%, but I'm going to get 100% of the blame. Mm. So it, that's that's from the coach's point of view. But as far as the player's point of view, if, if a player has a very good relationship, and you see it also with trainers. So if I'm doing well with you as my coach, for example, and then people notice it. And Dennis Pugh is a great example. I remember Monty going to Dennis Pugh because he wasn't playing well at the majors at that particular time. And and so you want to go, oh, well, actually, I want to go and see Jeff Shackleford because he's really doing well with Mike Clayton and Frank Nobolo. And then you go, well, well what about us? Um, are we going to lose time? Because if Jeff is already higher ranked on the world, on the, on the world golf rankings, then maybe we're going to get less time. So th- there is a fight for time. Um, but you know, it, it, has, it has gone, you know, it's overboard now where, where you've got to check with six players or whatever is to see if it's okay, if you can put another one through. Or, you know, norm- it was the same with Ernie Els, with the sports psychologist, when he used to use um, the Belgium mm. guy, that, that Retief Goosen used there for a while so it's across the board and it's not just what you would think you know certain players it's it really is across the board now because everybody wants their plane everybody wants their own coach their own trainer and it's not possible but um but also the coaches do use it you know as a way out if they it's an easy out just say i'm full but then as butch said i'm full and then he picks up ricky because ricky's a tremendous talent yeah well as a coach you'd want to work and it it, it, it's, I was listening about that when you were talking there, Frank, and, and you're right. There'd be nothing in it for Butch, would there? It, it might be a good thing for Tiger. You could argue that case, but there's nothing in that for Butch, is there, to, to take no, Tiger but, back? So. And, and that's the thing that, you know, we, we've, some people have talked up such a good game that unless Tiger Woods goes back to Butch, until he eats humble pie and goes back, he'll never get his game back. Well, in some respects, the skipping the Haney years, which his win rate was still off the charts, but that really was at his... It should have been his emotional peak as a player, his emotional maturity and all that, you know, um, 26, 27 years of age. Um, but he still, he was winning at an amazing rate. But a lot of the things that he's doing now, that, you know, if you want to use the, the phrase like motor patterns, they started then. Mm. And, and Hank used to call it a compression move. I remember because he yelled at me one day because once again I was on the range and he goes, I can't believe you said he's dipping and all this. Everybody dips. And I'm like, yeah, but he's dipping more than most. I, I remember the conversation like it was yesterday. So I gave him my I gave him my cell phone number and I said, Hank, if ever there's a problem, here it is. You know, where I come from, you know, this is like a you know, here it is, just call me. And he would only ever text to complain. And um, and it was 
after he split up with Woods and the book, he was like, hey, can I send you a copy of the book? And it's amazing how things changed. But a lot of the things you see in Woods over the last few years, I know he's been trying to get away from purely because his body can't handle it. So you've got an awkward situation where he can't play the way he would perhaps like to or could have. He has to find a different way to facilitate his body, which is bigger, more cumbersome, doesn't move as freely as before, plus injured. So that's a that's a hard riddle to solve. Mm. Well, he's huge now, isn't he? It's quite confronting when you see him these days on TV. He's so broad at the top and so barrel sort of chested. He's, uh, yeah, really it's cumbersome. You, you can't swim, swing like that 24, 25-year-old, which was a wispy frame. Mm. Yeah. Well, the, the the kid who won in 97, there was nothing of him, was there? His clothes hung off him. They couldn't make clothes small enough to, to sort of stay on him. He's, you wouldn't recognise him necessarily as the as the same person. Clates, what's your take on the whole coaching thing? A lot of old school people say this whole this coaching stuff's overrated. Every player seems to have a coach now. Who does Jeff work with, Jeff Ogilvy, and how does he sort of talk about that whole relationship and the importance of it? Well, Frank would know better than I because, I mean, he sees Jeff out in the tour. I mean, he worked with Dale Lynch for a long time here, but... I'm not sure Lynch is over there too much now. So, I mean, Greg, Jeff obviously was playing poorly at the, at the end of the last year and I know he saw a couple of teachers here just to talk to really more than anything else. I don't think he had too many balls. And, you know, he, he said to me at the study, I went home and I watched Sam Snead YouTube videos for a couple of days. And So Jeff's a little different. He plays by feel and thinks about it a bit more and he, he knows he doesn't play better if he just goes to the range and beats balls. So, so he... I think he sits down in a chair and thinks about it a bit. And he actually wrote a tremendous article that came out the week before he won. It came mm-hmm. out in the, in the Golf Australia magazine saying, sort of, I'm playing fine, don't worry about me, I'll be okay. And he won the next week. But, you know, an interesting case of a really talented player going through a bad time and playing poorly and not getting in the majors. And, but, you know, I tend to... I don't think he's been working with anyone much over there, just, just trying to figure it out himself, which is, which is the way Peter Thompson always said, everyone should do it. Work it out yourself. Which, I kind of wonder too much if guys run off to teachers to solve every problem they have when they'd probably be better off going out and just going on the range and hitting balls and trying to figure it out themselves. But you, know, you look at this era, as I said before, you know, there, are, there are 100 kids who will come and play. Frank's coming down and commentate on the Asian Amateur at Royal Melbourne in a couple of weeks or a month. There'll be 30 guys in that range who'll swing better than anyone on the European Tour did in 1980. So, so the teachers have been great for the game, really. And it's come from the video and then later, more later Trackman, which again goes back to, you know, Frank was talking about when he went and saw Dennis Pugh and Pugh, Pugh was explaining what, what the ball was doing. So my question, Frank, I guess would be how much of what Pugh told you, how much does that measure up with what a Trackman would have told you 20 years later? Was it the same well, sort of information or? Yeah, he, he was one of the first, and, and that was the interesting thing about it. Uh, most of us learn under the John Jacobs philosophy, the teacher that is, where, you know, obviously if you wanted to hook one, you pointed the club face at the target and you moved your body right or left to, you know, get the right amount of hook or cut. And invariably, if you're trying to hook one around a tree, every now and again, you just pull it straight into the tree. Yeah. And one lesson, he was convincing me that the club face was more important than the, the path of the golf swing. And I'm like, no, no, that can't be right. You know, I've got three John Jacobs books at home. I've read it. That's the way, you know, ever since I was a kid. And that's one of the things that TrackMan sort of shows. And it's a bit, you know, to me, I, I say it's like an MRI. It, it doesn't mean it's you've you got a full recovery. It just it gives you a snapshot. Yeah. And it just depends also on how many you use. Like Rory McIlroy used it or uses it. And 
and it really helped him through the transition of moving from Titleist to Nike because he had a, a, a base. He had exact numbers of when he was playing great on, on what the ball should do when he hits it. Not when I hit it, not when Shaq hits it, not when Clyde hit it, but when he hits it. Yeah. You know, it was was 100, you know, 118 miles an hour or something and 2,500 RPM, and, and it launched at X, Y, and Z without trying to get too complicated. So when he first went to the Nike driver, he couldn't come close to those numbers. And if you remember in the Middle East, he played horrible. But he still had a baseball, and he had something to find. And, um, and to me, you know, if we, if we really look back at, at, at golf over the last 100 years, and forget, forget the pros, because the, the, the best in the business always find a way. They just that's the, it's a process of elimination. You're better because you're better genetically, whatever, you know, better eyesight, you name it. You will find a way to play. But what about the average recreational player? Why does he not get better? And the only argument there is coaching's been forward for years and years and years. So now we actually have some technology available that actually can hopefully tell the truth for the recreational player. And just maybe it might send them down the track where if you learn golf and you play for four years – that you're actually a better player four years later than what you were when you started. Yeah, that should be the way because if I if I took up tennis tomorrow and in four years I was worse or or the same, I'd quit. And a lot of golfers, that's exactly what happens. They get lessons, they do this, they do that. Four years later, they're still hopeless. And the last thing I saw was a sorry, it was a friend of mine who was a decent player, young kid, law degree, nice job, played golf, loves the architecture. Was a decent player at sixteen or seventeen, you know, like a eight handicap, and he got to be terrible. I mean, he was low duck hooks, massive high blocks. I said, "Go and see this." There's a kid who teaches in a golf shop near near where I live. He's, I said, there's, "There's a track man there. Go and see him and just find out what you're doing." I played with him six weeks ago. He was back playing properly again. I said, "What happened?" He said, "Well, my club was six degrees inside and six degrees open." He said, "Just explained everything." Mm. And you know, he literally took ten shots off his handicap in a month. Because he just figured the path and the face out. Yet in the old days, he could have he could have kept going back to a teacher every week for four years, spent a fortune, and, and not got any better. Because his swing actually looked pretty good, but the shots are unfathomably bad. He went and got on the track man, just fixed like that. It was amazing. And that's the ramifications that it can have for the recreational player. But the way in which we're selling it, and, and you know, I'm saying more TV is we're making it a case of old and new. And we're saying Tiger Woods is too analytical, but Rory McIlroy's, you know, plays by feel and, and he, uh, he plays with a band and he doesn't use data. Well, that <laughs> couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah. He's, he's actually done the same thing. He's, he's used video ever since he was a kid. Well, he would have, wouldn't he? Yeah. He's in that era, isn't he, Frank? He couldn't have escaped it if he tried. Well, he, he trains at high altitude. I think if you go back, uh, someone, a doctor was telling me the other day, um, since 19, uh, 1998, I think it is, 95% of medalists in the Olympics in track and field are trained, either lived or trained at high altitude. If you go to, um, if you just sort of Google, you know, Rory, Rory McIlroy and his training or altitude training, there's a, there's a crowd in London that he trains with. He trains at altitude. You know, that you put a mask on now which replicates training at altitude. There's so many things he does, but he just doesn't look technical. Mm. So you can make the assumption that everything's good, but it, it's, it's just checking all the boxes. So he used TrackMan the right way because it helped him when he was changing clubs. He used video the right way. He just doesn't look all tied up in knots because his mind's pretty clear. And he trains to be fit and he uses, he's, he's very efficient. But, you know, we, we often tag people. Oh, he looks technical. No, he looks great. You know, he looks like Seve. That's great. Um, but it's not always the truth. Hmm. 
wonder if Bubba goes on track, man. There's a bunch of stuff that you've, I'd like to unpack with what you said there, Frank. We'll have to be a bit quick because we're, we're getting over time. But um, all that stuff and the info and what you're talking about and the golf swing and hitting the ball better and all those sorts of things, actually really not got a lot to do with playing good golf, has it? I mean, it's important. You, you must be able to hit the ball half decent to play decent golf. But golf's good golf is really not so much about that as about how you handle yourself and how you manage your own game as well. I wonder for recreational players whether that's more often where the issues come up. You know, they learn to hit the ball and get it airborne, which is easier than it's ever been, as Clates has pointed out many times. They don't play any better golf because they don't manage that game any better than they used to. Yeah, I think you'd be right on... You've got to teach people the right way, though. You know, first of all, if they do know what makes it go right and what makes it go left, and I'm talking about any level, even a 36 handicap, but, you know, if you pull it one across the ground or, you know, fly it out of bounds on the right, as long as you've got a rough idea what causes that. You know, I played in programs where a guy sliced it and says, I can't stop hooking it. Um, even, even get the language wrong. So if you can just simplify a little bit of that and say, okay, this might cause it to go right and that might cause it to go left, that's, that's just getting ready to play. That's like starting your car. And then you're right, most amateurs, they never take enough club. Um, you know, they're more often short than long. And, and you know, you can, you can really help them quite, quite quickly. And, you know, the, we play golf and the gimme thing, and I've heard all the things about make five-inch holes and all that. But that's the beauty of the game. We don't have to keep changing it. And, uh, you know, the one thing is we, we certainly don't have to keep making the courses longer, but that's another debate. Um, then, then, yeah, you can take a person around a, go- a game uh, around a golf and, and – Explain to them why the architect put the bunker there. You know why the why this green has a false front. Why that, and just say you know you don't have to play it in straight lines. And invariably the guy goes, oh that's golf. I, I remember playing squash with a mate of mine when I was a kid, and uh, he was killing me, absolutely killing me. And and uh, all I would do is I hit it back, and it would it would bounce in the middle of the tee. And of course, there was only one idiot running left, right, and center. And that was me. <laughs> and and he didn't tell me anything. He just allowed me to get beaten every single day, and I was trying to do it to, to keep fit. So I went to the local library and I grabbed a book on squash and it, and it told me, you don't do that. You know, you try and hit it down the walls. And I'm like, oh, it was an epiphany, right? So the next time we played, I nearly beat him. And it was like, all, all I did was understand the game. And so there's a big component in the game. And that's also the way in which it's taught. Just hey, take a lesson, go out with someone better, um, watch him hit a couple of chip shots or a bunker shot or whatever. And just say, hey, how'd you do that? Or why did you do that? Even playing for a bogey. You know, why'd you go out sideways? You know, why did you do that? Even dropping, dropping, when you're taking a penalty drop. Mm. They're all things that help, but, you know, the devil's always in the detail. Yeah. I remember Craig Parry told me quite seriously once, he reckoned he could save the average 18 marker or 20 marker, 10 shots around. 10 shots, he said. Let me caddy for him. I'll save him 10 shots. I nearly put him up to it and had him do it for a magazine. But you, I think you're probably right. What, what would That'd be your experience too, wouldn't it, Clates? People just don't manage what they've got. They might actually play the game okay, but they've got no idea how to play the game, so to speak. Yeah, there are varying levels of competence in terms of getting around a course. But yeah, I play with an old guy every week at Metro who just insists on using the wrong club on every par three because he, <laughs> you know, got there with a, you know I got there with a three wood four years ago. So he's seventy five years old. Come on, I mean you get a driver, my friend. Just get your driver out and hit it up on the green. No, I can get there with a five wood. No, you can't. I promise you, you can't. Yes, I can. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a level of stubbornness there with golfers that and and. They never club for the duff either. I mean, I always club for the duff. Really, now I play and I, you know, if I rip one over the back of the greens, because I, you know, because I've hit, it's only because I hit it properly. And what? That's a happy accident these days. Is this yeah. what you're suggesting, Clates? Well, yeah, you know, uh, sometimes. But I, I mean, people who amateurs who constantly miss club always remember their best shots, whereas mm. pros, t- you know, tend to understand their miss hits and 
play for their mishits and you know if they rip it they're on the back of the green but if they hit it kind of just average it's perfect mm. That's well, it. to good. that point, Billy Horschel a uh, talented young uh, American yeah. player was playing a practice round with Tiger Woods at the US Open last year at Marion and um, his kid's been around for, for a while really talented college player he's a kid can play yeah really and, yeah really good swing all that sort of business so he's playing his practice round and after about six holes he, he looks back and he noticed that Tiger Woods was doing the same thing he dropped like four balls in the middle of the green and he'd putt you know to the corner of each you know the corners of each green and then lo and behold next hole he'd do the same thing and he'd worry about it again and they get around about the 16th the 17th hole and it's the same thing so they finished and he, and Billy goes hey Tiger can I ask you a question and he goes yeah sure and he goes you know I just just noticed something today you know he said, um, you know, we're playing a practice round, I get it, you know, not really trying that hard and that. He said, but every green, he said, uh, you drop four balls in the middle of the green, you put it to the corners. Why? He said, this is a U.S. Open. And he goes, yeah, no, I, I gather that. And he goes, I figure when I'm in trouble, I can always get the ball to the middle of the green. He said, we've got to play golf. This is about shooting, you know, this is about 72 hours getting a decent score. And he said, from there, he said, you know, obviously the flag is going to be in the corners. You put to the corners. So he's picking the easy, easiest target to hit. This was, you know, he got back to world number one last year. And there he is, the best player in the world, was actually thinking about simplifying the game, what he could do, which is hit to the middle, putt to the corners. And so if the best have to do that nine times out of ten, then the recreational golfer can take a leaf out of that book. Mm. It's extraordinarily simple for one with such talent, isn't it, Frank? It's not the answer you expect. It's so simple, but that's just the fundamentals, I suppose, isn't it? Hit it to the middle, yeah. putt from there. It's... Uh... It's fabulous stuff. Frank, there's a million things we'd like to talk to you about, but we've already taken more of your time than I meant to. We haven't heard anywhere near enough from you, Shaq, but you've got your own blog to say the things that no, you're I'm, going to No, I'm so. happily listening and enjoying. <laughs> it's been great. It has been fantastic, Frank, and we must thank you again. It's been beautiful to talk to you. We'll get the pirate story perhaps next time you come on the show, if you're prepared to come back. I've enjoyed it. Hope you have too. No, I have. It's been good. And, uh, no, Shaq and I will have many discussions in the media centre. We'll... Uh We'll always get each other's guide, but no, it's been good to catch up with Clates as well. And Rod, I appreciate it. No, it's uh, it's been uh, it's been a, an absolute pleasure and an honour to have you on. Actually, it's been fantastic. Shaq, as always, a big thank you to you over there uh, in the states. Great to have you on board. We must talk about thank the PGA at some point. But... Yes, thank you, Rod. Uh, and uh, Clates down here, fabulous to have you, and fabulous to hear you uh, chatting with Frank there about sort of just the honour. They're the stories that you just don't hear enough of anymore. So really appreciate uh, listening to that today. Thanks for your time. Ask Thanks. him the ones he can't tell. <laughs> I'm about to turn the tape off, Frank, so we might come to that in a minute. We'll have another hour of, uh, of listening to the ones that, uh, that aren't for publication. But for this episode, that's it for State of the Game. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks to do it all again here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.